Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called a people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Uh, Again, we are looking into our lineage series on the prophet Elijah, and we are going to talk about the subject of prayer. And I know that many of you, especially in this day and time, uh, when things are going haywire uh, across the world, and uh, there are so many issues that are happening in our country, uh, there's no better time than for us to look and study uh, what it means to be men and women of prayer. And as Christians, uh, we need to take this study to heart. And so we want to look at Elijah's life, and if you would, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you want, you can look on the screen. Uh, I'll begin reading in verse 36. And this is what the word of the Lord says. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went and looked up. There is nothing there, his servant said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Verse 44, the seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell King Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Verse 45, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel, and the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
You know, when you look at the life of Elijah, you can't help but to see the power and the majesty of God at work in his life. Elijah was a man of God, and we see a person who definitely knew how to communicate with his God. We see, and we're not going to look at this today, we've got a specific text, but let me give you a bit of background. We see him first entering into King Ahab's palace and stating that because of Israel's sin, there would be no dew, no rain on the land except at his word. And so for three and a half years, there was a massive drought. God sent Elijah to the Kirith Ravine, and it was there that he waits and he prays. And miraculously, ravens bring him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. These ravens supernaturally bring the man of God food every day while he is there. Now God then moves him to Zarephath of the area called Sidon. And it's there that he prays. And miraculously, while he's staying there with a widow woman and his family, he is given or they are given just enough flour and just enough oil every day to survive this drought and this famine. It was there that the widow woman's son dies unexpectedly. The widow woman is angry and bitter and resentful toward Elijah, but Elijah takes that boy up to his room and prays on top of the boy, and miraculously, that boy is brought back to life again. It's then that God tells Elijah, Elijah to go to Mount Carmel to challenge the 400 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah. And it's there that 850 false prophets pray all day, beseeching their God to answer by fire to no avail. And in this showdown, Elijah prays a short prayer. In the NIV, it's recorded as 58 words. This short little prayer, and miraculously, fire falls down from heaven and consumes everything, the wood and the sacrifice. It even disintegrates the stones and licks up all the water that's in the trench. And it's at that that Israel repents of their idolatry, and they return back to God. And we see great revival happening in Israel because of the power that is used, God's power that is used through the man of God, Elijah. And I want you to see here a believer that truly lived out a lifestyle of prayer all throughout what we see in recorded scripture. Powerful, effective communication with Almighty God all throughout his life. Now, That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how important it is to live a lifestyle of prayer. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to study Elijah's prayer for rain. And I want us to examine the ingredients to Elijah's prayer life. These are ingredients that we need in our lives today. And I dare say, if we take these ingredients to heart, we, like Elijah, will have that kind of prayer life, that real, powerful, uh, relevant life uh, in prayer. So let's look at the ingredients. Number one, we want to look at presumption in prayer. If you're taking notes, write that down. Presumption in prayer. Now, I want to share with you that presumption can be very biblical and very appropriate because we need to have presumption 
a bold, confident expectation that God will answer our prayer. I want you to notice presumption in the words of Elijah in verse 41, there is a sound of a heavy rain. Now think about this. Here's the context. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. And as Elijah says this, there's not a cloud in the sky. There is no thunder. There's no sound of rain. There's no feeling of rain. As a matter of fact, it's as dry as a bone, as dry as it has been for years. How can Elijah say there is a sound of a heavy rain? It's because Elijah is eagerly expecting rain. There is a presumption to Elijah. Can I share with you, presumption can be very unbiblical and dangerous. Well, you might say, I thought you said presumption was biblical and appropriate. Now you're telling me that it's unbiblical and dangerous? Can I share with you? Yes, that's true. Because presumption can be very unbiblical and very dangerous when it is an unwarranted assumption. And we've got to see, was Elijah's presumption biblical and appropriate or was it an unwarranted assumption? And can I share with all, you know, with all the, the, um, the faith that I can muster that Elijah's confidence was very biblical because it was based on three things. I want you to see these three things. Number one, faith in God's word. Number two, obedience to God's will. And number three, desire for God's glory. You see, Elijah's confidence was based, number one, on faith in God's word. Do you know why Elijah expected it to rain? Because in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, and I didn't put this up, but just listen to this. It says, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So right before the showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, God told Elijah that he was ready to send rain. And it's as simple as that. Elijah's confidence was based on the object of faith being God's word. And see, this is very important to note this, because many times presumption in prayer uh, for some of us are based on feelings and on emotions. As a matter of fact, there are many Christians that base their Christian lives on the subjective feelings rather than on the objective word of God. And I think this is really important to share this with you. If there was ever a time when Elijah could have tried to base his life on feelings and on emotions, it was right now. God's fire had fallen. Revival had happened. So based on those feelings, that Mount Carmel high, he could have assumed, oh, you know what? I feel like God's going to send rain. And it would have been an unwarranted assumption. He would have presumed wrongly. But again, his confidence was tethered to the word of God. I think this is so important for us to understand because as Christians, we fall into being tempted uh, by feelings and by emotions. They're highly unreliable. You know, there have been so many times that I've counseled people in different ways. There have been times that I've counseled uh, men who have had affairs with a certain woman 
and uh, you know, and and they were unfaithful to their wives, and they they wanted to divorce their wives. And I shared with them the word of God and what that had to say, and they would say, you know what? I don't care what the word of God says. I know how I feel. I know that this is right because it feels right. They were going based on their feelings. You know, I've had college students who shared with me um, a certain. Um, a certain cultural idea that is very popular uh, in this uh, day and time, and it conflicts with the Word of God. And so I'll show them chapter and verse in the Word of God, and they'll essentially say to me, you know, I don't care what Scripture has to say. This is 2021. I mean, we've got to roll with the times, and you know, I, the Word of God it just seems outdated to me. I, I know how I feel. I know, you know, what, what, you know, what my emotions tell me. And many times we can get distracted and tempted away from the objective word of God because of feelings and emotions. Can I share with you, Elijah's confidence and expectation was always based on the objective word of God. God told him that he was going to do it. Number two, obedience to God's will. How did Elijah know that it was going to rain? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I just want you to listen. I'm not going to put it up. But this passage was a hundred years before Elijah even existed. So a hundred years before Elijah ever came onto the scene, God put 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 13 and 14 as a promise to Israel. And this is what it says. It's pretty amazing. God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. You see, God saying, when, when there comes a time that I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, when I send judgment on Israel, if you will repent, if you will come back to me, he promises that he will heal and he will send rain once again. If they humble and pray and seek God's face and turn away, and that's exactly what Israel does in chapter 18 and verse 39 of our text. They return back to the Lord. And now God sends healing. God sends rain to them. You see, we can only have confidence in prayer when we're living in obedience to God's will. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18 and 19 says this, If I had regarded sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But God has surely listened. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. The psalmist says that God hears when we're walking in obedience to him. When we regard sin in our heart, when we turn away from the Lord, we don't have such confidence. Psalm chapter 37 in verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I know guys that have that uh, tattooed on their body. And it's a beautiful passage. But the problem many times is we take Psalm 37 verse 4 and we actually put a spin on it that it was never intended to have. Some people misunderstand this passage as almost a genie in the bottle. That if we rub God the right way, we can get what we want out of him. 
right? If I delight in him, if I tell him how awesome he is, if I, you know, uh, pay him lip service, then he'll give me what I want. And you see, that's a pagan understanding of Psalm chapter 37 and verse 4. That's not that idea. The idea is when we're delighting in God, then it's us that change. We change where God's desires finally become our desires. When we're worshiping him, when we're obeying his will, the desires of our heart are aligned with God's desires. And that's when God gives us those desires of our heart. Does that make sense? It's only when we're living in obedience to God's will. Are we, pray, are we uh, praying out God's will in our lives? The third point I want us to look at is Elijah's confidence was also based on desire for God's glory. Why was Elijah so confident that it was going to rain? Because here, it was for God's glory. Isaiah 48, God speaks in verse 9, and he says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back so as not to cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not give my glory to another. What is God saying here? God's saying he does everything for his own sake. He does it for his glory, and he is jealous of his glory. He will never allow someone else to defame him or to take out his glory. You see, God is jealous and zealous for his glory. And really, that's a right expression of who God is. So what does that tell us? It tells us that all prayer is answered to give God glory. You know, I was flipping through the channels the other day, and uh, I came across a preacher, quote unquote, right? He had a white suit on, he had gold, a gold necklace, gold rings on his finger, and he was uh, saying that this was the year of jubilee for the Christian. This was a time of great prosperity if you have enough faith. And he was talking to the Christians on, the, uh, on television, and he was saying, as a way to show that you have faith, give me seed money. Give me money. Anytime a guy like that, you know, tries to manipulate you and do that, you know that there's something wrong. But this guy was saying, if you give seed money and you pray in faith, then whatever you give me, God will give you tenfold. He'll give you, and he started listing all of these material things, a mansion, a Rolls Royce, a jet plane. I mean, he was sharing all these things. And as I was watching this, I started thinking to myself, if God gave me all of those things, who would receive the glory? If God gave me all of those material possessions that I'm listening to this guy and I'm tempted, right, to, to want all these things, who would receive the glory? James chapter 4 and verse 3 says, when you ask and you do not receive, it's because you ask with wrong motives, that you may consume what you get on your own pleasures. You see, what is the motive behind our prayers? Is it to consume it upon our own lusts? Is it selfish and self-serving? Or is it genuinely for the glory of God? See, we can have presumption. We can have this bold, confident expectation coming to the throne of grace that God will answer our prayers when they are according to God's will, according to God's word, and according to his glory. The second point I want us to look at is 
passion in prayer. Not only did Elijah have presumption in prayer, he also had passion in prayer. I want you to notice Elijah's intense desire in verse 42. And Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Now, you might read this and think, why did he do that? Was that the normal orthodox way of praying back then? To bend down to the ground and put your face between your knees? I don't even think I can do that now that I'm 52 years old, right? That's a very difficult thing to do. But you know, the normal orthodox way of prayer back then was actually to stand up straight, to have your head up, to have your uh, hands out, and to pray that way. So why was Elijah praying this particular way? I mean, is this kind of a model of how we should pray from now on? Is it a holier, more effective way to pray? Well, I can give you, there's a clue in here that can answer why Elijah prayed this funny way. And it's found in uh, chapter 17 in verse 1. Let me just read it. It says, Elijah was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. When we look at the geography of Israel, Gilead is way up in the mountains of Israel. And Tishbe was way up in the mountains of Gilead. So you know what that made Elijah? That made Elijah a mountain man. It made him a hillbilly. It made him a redneck, a hick, a yahoo. So many times we think of Elijah as this superhuman. We see him as this refined uh, religious figure. And that's how he's portrayed many times. But did you know that Elijah was just a hillbilly with no education? He didn't have any culture. He wasn't sophisticated at all. And he was just praying in the habit that, that he was used to praying in. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees because that's kind of how he did it up in the mountains. You know what this tells us? God doesn't care about the posture of your prayer. God cares only about the passion of your prayer. Whether you stand up, sit down, kneel, have your face between your knees, the outward show isn't the important thing. It's the inward attitude. Do you have a desire and a passion to meet with the Lord? Do you want to meet with him? Do you have a genuine desire to talk to him? And that's my point. Our motivation to meet with the Lord is revealed in our passion when we pray. You study the characters of the Bible. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Ken uh, gave a message on Jacob wrestling with God. And what a beautiful picture of prayer where Jacob wrestles with God. And he tells God, you know, I'm going to wrestle with you until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And you know what happens? God actually changes his name through that wrestling experience from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the prince among my people. You see, God blessed him because of the passion that he wrestled with God in prayer. You know, uh, last week we studied the character of David. If you read the, uh, David's Psalms, you see a man in different emotional states with different needs, and he comes to God raw, and he comes real. He comes to the Lord with passion, wherever he is, to talk to God about the situation that he's in. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 63, where David says, Oh God, you are my God. 
early will I seek you. My flesh yearns for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You see, David says, you are water for my soul. I need you. And he comes to God in passion. Next week, actually, um, Pastor Kevin is going to teach on Daniel. And he's going to talk about prayer as well. And it's so important for us to understand that when we look at the life of Daniel, we see a person who regularly, as a habit, came to the Lord in worship and thanksgiving, passionately praying and passionately coming to the Lord as his discipline. We look at Jesus, our example, the perfect man, the God-man. And what did he do? He prays that high priestly prayer for his disciples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out passionately uh, with urgency as he talks to the Lord. The Bible says he sweat great drops of blood. Do we come with urgency and intensity and passion? Now, I'm not saying that we need to come every time wrestling and crying and weeping and sweating. That's not what I'm saying. I realize that in those contexts, these believers were going through major circumstances in their lives. What I'm saying is, whether we're on the mountaintops or whether in the valleys or we're somewhere in between going through our routine rhythms, do we come with a burning desire to meet with God in those experiences? in those times. You see, passion in prayer, that's what God desires for us. If we could put this up, prayer is answered. Go, know, slow, and grow. I love this. Prayer is answered in those four ways. Go is that green light when God just answers our prayers exactly how we want. And it's just so exciting and it's awesome. I'm sure that uh, many of you uh, in the opening uh, when we were meeting in our groups, you guys shared go answers that God gave you. And those are tremendous. And of course, they edify our souls and they, they encourage our hearts. But you know, God also answers no. And sometimes God is very clear that he will not do it what we've requested from him. Or slow, when he is silent, when he tarries, when he makes you wait, even though it's agonizing, he makes you wait. And sometimes it's grow, when we pray and God gives us something different, or God detours what we asked and gives us something else. And many times it zigzags And the reason why he does that is to get us to mature and grow in our faith and in our relationship with the Lord. Go, know, slow, and grow. In all those things, can we passionately pursue God in prayer in all of those categories? You know, there's a song by Lauren Daigle called Trust. It's one of those songs that she is not as well known for. But I love this. This is probably my favorite song that she sings. Let me read it to you. I think it's so beautiful. She says, Letting go of every single dream, I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wandering never changes what you see. Truth is, you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead you have not seen. So in all things be my life and breath. I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could go through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, 
I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There is not a place where I'll go that you've, all, you've not already stood. When you don't move the mountains I'm needing you to move, when you don't part the waters I wish I could go through, when you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust in you. Now that is a song of passion. That wherever and whatever state we are in, that we can come and pursue God in all of those categories of life. The third point we want to look at is persistence in prayer. Let's look in verse 43. Go and look toward the sea, Elijah told his servant. And his servant went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Now, why seven times? Have you ever thought about that as you read this passage? Well, we know that numbers are very significant in the Bible. And seven is the number of completion or perfection. So when we look at seven in the Bible, it is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. What this text is teaching us is that Elijah keeps praying with persistence until it's completed, until it's perfected. I want you to imagine Elijah's got his face between his knees. He's praying for rain to come because God said it was going to come, but he prays for it expectantly. He prays for it passionately, and he tells his servant to go look for a sign in the sky. His servant goes and looks, and there's not a cloud in the sky. Comes back the first time and says, Elijah, it's not here. And Elijah says, go back again. Go look again. So the servant goes back and looks. It's not there. He comes back and he says, Elijah, there's nothing there. He says, go back again. He tells him seven times. Imagine the servant going back and forth seven times until finally, finally, as Elijah prays persistently, he comes back and he says, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand. And Elijah says, that's it. That's rain. It's coming. You see, some prayers we pray with presumption and passion, yet God decides to remain silent. Yet God decides to tarry. That doesn't tell us that we should quit. If God doesn't answer and he doesn't say no, what he wants us to do is to continue to pray, to keep praying until he's given us an answer. Don't quit. Keep praying it through. I'm reminded in Luke chapter 11, when the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus gives them a funky parable. It's a very interesting parable. It's the parable of the nagging neighbor. And Jesus tells them, this is how you should pray. And he tells them the story of a man who had a friend come from a long journey to visit him. The problem is he comes uh, at 12 uh, mi uh, midnight. He comes when everybody's asleep. His friend has no food, and so he goes to his neighbor and he knocks on the door. His neighbor hears the ruckus and says, what do you want? And I'm always imagining that he's just behind the door, right? Maybe he has a little, little uh, uh, eye peephole, I don't know. But he's like, what do you want? And he goes, ah, it's your neighbor. You know, my friend has come and he's hungry. Could you come down and give me three loaves of bread and I'll go away. But just give me three loaves of bread. And the neighbor's like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Everyone's in bed. Come back tomorrow. I'll see what I can do. And he goes, and the guy, what do you want? 
hey, listen, I know it's kind of tough. I'm sorry, but my friend's hungry. Could you give me three loaves of bread? The guy's like, no way. Get out of here. And he keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking until finally the guy gives him what he wants, not because he loves the guy or because he wants to. It's because he just wants to get rid of him. He's irritated by him. And that's exactly how Jesus tells us we should pray. Pray in that irritating, nagging manner. Because after he gives the parable in verse 10, this is what he says. Jesus says, so I say to you, persistently ask and it will be given to you. Persistently seek and you will find. Persistently knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who persistently asks receives. The one who persistently seeks finds. And the one who persistently knocks, the door will be opened. In this passage in verse 10, the uh, grammar is the idea of persistence. Persistently asking and seeking and knocking. Jesus tells his disciples to pray persistently. And that's what he tells us to do. One of my favorite verses, it's a life verse. It's so practical in my life. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Can we put that up? And it's three words in verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Have you ever read that and wondered, what exactly does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean locking yourself up in a monastery and spending all of your time, 24 hours a day, on your knees praying. That's not what pray without ceasing is meaning. The Greek word without ceasing is found only once in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's only found once, but it's found countless times in the ancient secular Greek texts. And you know where it's found? It's found in the medical records. And in the medical records, it has to do with a person who has a persistent chronic cough. Have you ever had a cough that wouldn't go away? I remember when I had bronchitis, I would say to people, I have been coughing all day. And you guys all know what I mean when I say that, right? I've been coughing all day. I'm not saying when I say that, that when I get up in the morning, I'm, <laughs> I'm having breakfast, <laughs> I'm having lunch, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm just coughing nonstop. That's not what it means. It means that there's a tickle in my, uh, in my body. There is this desire to cough, and something, when it triggers it, I cough whenever and wherever. I just can't help it. It's bronchitis, right? It's that nagging cough. That's what this verse is saying. Our prayer life should be like a chronic cough, that at any time, anywhere throughout the day, there's a tickle that triggers us to pray. Maybe we're driving down the road and God reminds us of something that particular moment. It's at that moment that we could go to the Lord in prayer. Don't close your eyes, of course, or anything like that, but we can go to the Lord in prayer. If we're burdened by a thought that uh, comes to us in the middle of the day, that we stop right there and we say a quick prayer in constant communication with God. If God brings something that uh, that elicits praise to him, if we can burst into spontaneous worship at that very moment. You see, we can immediately enter the throne of grace anywhere, anytime, and we can bring out that praying without ceasing, and that's what God wants from us. This is what it means to pray persistently, that constant, continual communication with God.
Now let's look at the fourth point. The fourth point is power in prayer. Power in prayer. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Verse 46. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. You see, Elijah's prayer had finally been answered. And just as the rains begin to set in, God's supernatural power falls upon this man, Elijah, and he performs another amazing miracle. And we tend to overlook this amazing scene, and it's a miracle. Because from Mount Carmel to the capital of Israel, Jezreel, is 20 miles. And Ahab is off with his uh, Arabian chariots. Now, I want you to picture uh, old Elijah tucking his cloak into his belt. And back then, uh, everybody wore long flowing robes. And so when they wanted to run, what did they do? They, they would grab the hem of their garment, they would bring it up and they would tuck it in their belt and they would uh, uh, show their knees. They would create Nike running shorts. And what they would do is they would run and that's what old Elijah was doing. Can you imagine this? Here's the old man of God and he sprints and he sprints Uh, 20 miles faster than Ahab's chariots. Wow, what a miracle. You see, that is the power of prayer in our lives. It excites us. There is supernatural uh, 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 excitement and enthusiasm, and uh, it just just, uh, excites our hearts. Are you seeing the hand of God working in your life and in your prayer life today? presumptive, passionate, persistent prayer will lead to power. During the time of the Reformation, if we could put this slide up, in 1540, there was a man by the name of Frederick Myconius. Now, he was a friend and co-worker of Martin Luther who helped him and helped him, you know, in a significant way in the Reformation work in Germany. Well, this man, Myconius, fell deeply ill to the point where all the doctors agreed that he would not survive this. And so they encouraged him to put his affairs in order because he was going to die. Myconius, on his deathbed, wrote a loving farewell letter to Martin Luther, who was ministering in another city next to his. And he wrote this letter of how he loved Martin and how he would see him in heaven. And he gave this farewell to his servant to go and give it to Martin. Well, the reply came back that very day. And I want you to see, can we put up the reply? I love it because it's so Martin Luther. This is what he says. I command you in the name of God to live. Can you believe that? I command you in the name of God to live. I still need you in the work of reformation. The Lord will never permit me to hear of your death, but will allow you to outlive me. For this I am praying day and night. This is my will. May my will be done because my will seeks to glorify God. Every ingredient that we've studied, presumption, passion, persistence. And you know what? Miraculously, one week later, Frederick Myconius fully recovered from his illness. But that's not even the half of it. Here's the kicker. He later did die, but he died living a full life 
and he died two months after Martin Luther, just as Martin Luther had prayed. You see, there is power in prayer. The last thing I want us to look at is the pattern of prayer. We've seen the ingredients to prayer, but there is a pattern that we have to look at. The question might be, well, why was Elijah so effective? Was he some metahuman with mutant powers? Was he some super saint, superman with super talents? Well, in the New Testament, James chapter 5, it speaks of Elijah in verse 16, and this is what it says. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. See those three words? Just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain. You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. He was an ordinary guy. He was a hick, hillbilly, yahoo from up in Tishbe. That's all he was. Well, how was he able to do such supernatural things? Because he was effective in his prayer life. What made Elijah so effective? And here's the answer. His whole life was characterized by prayer. Elijah's power came from an entire life devoted to and characterized by disciplined prayer. That's the pattern that I want you to see. You know, when I was a younger pastor, a younger Christian, I bought a book called Prayer by Oswald Sanders. And it was a book that I was just so excited to read because I wanted to get gain insights. I wanted to even find some shortcuts in how I can have an effective prayer life and be a prayer warrior. That's what I wanted to be when I was young. And I remember as I began reading the, this book, the first truth that came out, and it was all throughout the book. Basically, it was the book. You know what it was? Prayer is hard work. And you know what? I was so mad. I was so irritated because I paid $14.99 for a book that told me something that I already knew. That's the, that's the reason I bought the book, was that prayer was so hard. But now, as I'm an older pastor, as I'm growing more in my faith, I realize the profundity of this truth. There are no instant formulas. There are no uh, mystical, magical shortcuts. Prayer is just hard work. You know why? Because a relationship is hard work. Intimate communication in a relationship is hard work. I know that some of you have just been married. You guys are newlyweds. I know there are people that are about to get married, and I'm just so excited for you. But you'll see after the honeymoon that marriage is hard work. Honeymoon, easy. Marriage, hard work. Because communicating and building a relationship is hard work. And that's what prayer is. We are married to God. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. The Old Testament, God looks at his people as being married to him. And what does it take to have a strong marriage relationship? Intimate communication, building a relationship. And that's exactly what we need to have. And that's a pattern of prayer. You know, I have a friend that actually just week, uh, this week invited me to meet with Robert Ory. Now, if we could put that picture up. Robert Ory is uh, one of my favorite basketball players. He played for the Lakers. He played for other teams, but I only remember him when he played for the Lakers because I'm such a big Laker fan. I, I love uh, the Lakers. And when uh, 
when he invited my friend invited me to meet him, I, I was down for it. I want to meet him so bad because I'm such a strong Laker fan. I remember Robert Ory when he played for the Lakers in those championships that we won with him. I remember the 2002 Western Conference Finals. And that was the Western Conference Finals against the Sacramento Kings. They were a great team. They had Chris Webber, Vladi Divac, among others. I remember Game 3 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals. If we could put that slide up. In the last seconds of the game, Robert Ory drains a three-pointer to win the game. It was a beautiful buzzer beater. And I remember he was so excited. He was flexing. He was going nuts. And you got to understand, this was pre-Steph Curry. So uh, throwing up three-pointers, it was a very difficult thing. People weren't doing it all the time. But Robert Ory was a great three-point shooter. And that was a spectacular shot at, at, at the buzzer. Well, I remember Channel 7, Rob Fukuzaki uh, interviewed the players. And so he went and he interviewed Vladi Divac that played for the Sacramento Kings. And I remember Vladi with his thick accent just scoffed because Rob Fukuzaki said, you know, what do you think of Robert Ori's uh, buzzer beater? And he said, it was just luck. That's what he said. It was luck. And just kind of poo-pooed it, right? Well, Fukuzaki went and interviewed Ori and said, this is what Vladi said, it was just luck. What do you say? And I remember Robert Ori said this, it wasn't luck, it was experience. It wasn't luck, it was experience. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I have practiced that shot my entire life. All the games I've practiced, I've played, whether it's club, uh, basketball, high school basketball, AAU, college, NBA, I have uh, in my whole entire life experience, I have shot those kinds of shots. Robert Ori was saying that his whole life was devoted to and characterized by disciplined shooting. It wasn't luck, it was experience. And in the same way, when we see Elijah's miraculous prayer, that prayer that sent fire down from heaven, that prayer that brought rain onto the land. Those are miraculous uh, answers to prayer, but yet we forget the thousands upon thousands of prayers that Elijah prayed to the Lord that's not recorded in the Bible. On the hills of Gilead, in the town of Tishbe, by the ravine of Kirith, inside the house of Zarephath. His whole life was characterized by disciplined prayer. He spent time communicating with God again and again and again. In short, Elijah lived a lifestyle of prayer. Isn't it any wonder how he knew how to get a hold of God? It's because Elijah had an intimate relationship with God. My friend, that is the pattern that God wants for our lives. Do we know God that way? You know, I have to ask, as we look and you know, as we examine our own lives, our, our, is our life, is our prayer life real and powerful and genuine? Is it characterized by discipline? Or do we have a shallow, weak, maybe immature communication with God? Because it's not a lifestyle. It's not deliberate and determined and disciplined. My friend, Elijah was a man just like us. Christian, we can have 
the same kind of relationship with the Lord. But we have to determine in our lives to make that relationship powerful and real. I want to ask, would you commit to that even this morning? Maybe you look at your life and God is saying to you, I want you to have more time with me. I want you to spend time um, getting a hold of me. Would you answer that call today? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that these mentors uh, that we find in scripture are always teaching and admonishing and correcting and training us. And I pray that we would look at Professor Elijah. We would look at his life. And Lord, that we would desire that same kind of relationship, Lord, with you. Lord, we know you as Lord and Savior, but we pray that we would grow in that faith. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks a lot, you guys.